0: Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Trump, China, trade wars, the slowdown, the radioactive prince, un-Brexit, a kinder, gentler burger. Presenting the world in 2019 by way of The Economist magazine. Do stay with us. This episode is made possible by Evo Advisors, helping busy professionals who have more than a 401k plan to worry about. Evo Advisors, offering clients financial advice Fiduciaries for Families, evoadvisors.com. And by Performance Food Service, a proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments, with more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide, online at pfgc.com. Joining us from London in the United Kingdom, which is still, I believe, part of the European Union, is Tom Standage, deputy editor of The Economist, where he helped oversee the world in 2019 issue. Sir, how are you?
1: I'm very well. Great to be here.
0: Uh, So many hotspots on our planet, so many if-then scenarios and pockets of uncertainty, whether you look at MBS in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, Xi in China, Netanyahu, whether he keeps his job in Israel by the end of the year, Facebook, which you followed closely Putin, Bolsonaro, populism in the Western Hemisphere, where, pray tell, does one start?
1: Yeah, it's a difficult one. And with this issue that we put together once a year, where we try to imagine the year ahead, we actually start the previous May. So we're we're about to almost um, start on the world in 2020, or at least in sort of four or five months. And so we are really trying to look for the very long running themes and how they might Turn into important events uh, in the, in the following year. So it's it's pretty tricky, and obviously we then get to course correct until the November when the issue comes out. But yes, it's uh, it is quite quite tricky, and particularly it's been tricky the last couple of years because the the news has been so extraordinary and so unpredictable uh, that producing this annual has become a lot more difficult than it used to be.
0: Well, then might I channel my American-centric American American, uh, by citing your article, your column on Joe Biden being not the best person to take on Donald Trump, to the extent we're already seeing Elizabeth Warren, the popular U.S. senator from Massachusetts, come out and establish at least her exploratory committee. You are going to have a kind of a lemming effect or or penguins hopping off the boulder if you will and 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 more of a field forming but I was struck to see that you guys came out and effectively told the presumptive frontrunner that the Democrats need someone who can offer a fresh face and new ideas and uh, Amtrak Joe would not be that person.
1: Yes, I, I could see um, you know I can see the case for him but I can also see the case against. Um, there is a theory that Each president has to be the opposite of the previous president. And obviously, Donald Trump is the opposite of Barack Obama in so many ways. And the question is, for the Democrats, what's the opposite of Donald Trump? And there are many possible answers to that. Uh, And it could be Elizabeth Warren. It could be Kamala Harris. Uh, Maybe a competent white man is the answer. Um, But... It's a tough one. And I think the real question is, how are they going to peel people off the off the Republicans? Um, and it may be that a white man is is the answer. But then is Joe Biden the, the right man? Uh, is Beto a, a better bet? Um, so, obviously, it, as we see these announcements coming out in the next few months and we start to get some polling data and we start to see, crucially, I think, how Trump defines his opponents. I mean, he, he hasn't had an opponent to rail against um since Hillary disappeared from the scene, and he's started to get Nancy Pelosi, but he's going to have to come up with a whole load of nicknames for people who he hasn't <laughs> had to fight against directly. And uh, and one of the things we think is that this is actually going to uh, possibly help Trump because uh, having you know he's never happier than when he has somebody to to belittle and somebody to attack. So uh, I I think a big a big part of this is you know how how all of these candidates stack up when they're faced with the uh, the, the the playground bully behavior that we know that donald trump is so capable of tom i'm in dc often and
0: i hear these these rumblings about that the country needs a healing ticket with an avuncular figure like like joe biden maybe promising to only be there for one term after all he is he is quite uh old he would be he would he be the oldest candidate to ever run for the democratic party
1: oh i don't know i'm I'm not an expert on those sort of statistics i'm afraid the
0: column goes into how elderly he looked on this flight with the correspondent, and it struck. They they asked the voters, "Like, I didn't realize he looked that, uh, that you know, uh, what do I say, elderly." Uh, but this idea that maybe he could pair with a greenhorn like uh, Beto O'Rourke, the shiny object out of Texas, who gave um, Cruz a run for his money in the midterm elections, or a Kamala Harris, or someone else who could then presumptively take on the uh, 2024 baton.
1: No, I mean, obviously, he would have to have a younger person on the ticket. Well, pretty much anyone would be a younger person on the ticket. But he would have to have someone who is who would represent you know, a fresh face and, and reaching out and, and a sort of, you know, the future of the party. And that would probably have to be a non-white woman. Um, but, you know, I think we're we're so at the beginning of this I mean we're how far from the election now and we don't know who's going to declare we don't know who's going to not declare uh we don't know how people are going to react to any of these potential candidates so so I think you know we're going to have plenty of time to speculate all about, about all of this and what in- intrigues me about 2019 is there's a whole load of things that we know are going to happen next year uh, or could happen next year before we even get to to 2020 I mean one of them yes is that the 2020 race is starting but there's a whole load of, of other things going on in in 20, in 2019 uh, where speculation is potentially, you know, more fruitful. I think.
0: Well, talk to me then uh, about the situation with a divided Washington, D.C., finally, that the Democrats did get a quiet wave and restored uh, majority in the lower house. Um, and right now we are at an impasse where nothing is going on. You're hearing about national parks and their bathrooms being left uh, dirty and people relieving themselves on the road, unfortunately.
1: Oh, it's amazing, uh, isn't and, it? All the, the reports from Joshua Tree and things. It's, it's astonishing.
0: Well, both sides have effectively dug in their heels. Uh, You are going to see the Democrats sworn in and and new faces coming in. And you kind of almost have to resist the urge to have uh, subpoena after subpoena after subpoena because Trump, of course, knows how to play that to his advantage and and, and play kind of the victimology card. Where do you see that headed at the very least, the, the relationship, the marriage of convenience over the next six months?
1: I think the the big danger is that the uh, the Democrats uh overreach and uh they're they are so desperate to investigate everything and to just spend all of their energy having a go at trump and clearly there is a need for some accountability and there are lots of things that need to be looked into but um it, it's very interesting even with what they're talking about doing on the first day uh that they that they come into power this week. They are talking about looking, you know, actually trying to get things done straight away. There's a there's various things they want to do on on healthcare. Obviously, they want to get the government restarted straight away. So I think uh, if they can continue like that, which is showing that they are doing things that are actually governing and not just using the fact that they control the House to, to have a go at Trump. I think they've, they've got to strike the right balance. There's also going to be you know, a large part of their base who do want them to just spend their time doing nothing but going after Trump. But that could just very easily play into his hands. I mean, he, he could just then say it really is a witch hunt and they need to prevent that from becoming a, a self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: Now, talk to me hemispherically. Uh, you guys pointed out, The Economist did, that we have three populists elected to the three most populous nations in the hemisphere the United States, Mexico with López Obrador, and Brazil with the fiery uh, uh, Jair Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro. Yeah. Um, th- that is kind of unprecedented in our recollection. This hasn't happened ever. And 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 you seem to see Washington sending kisses to this right-wing leader in Brazil. It's really bizarre. Um, uh, strange bedfellows with Bibi Netanyahu in Israel and the new leader of Brazil who has made overtures to the right-wing and some— potentially anti-Semitic elements in his past, but that's all water under the bridge right Yeah, now.
1: apparently he's also talking about a Christian axis between Brazil, uh, the United States, and Russia, um, which is a sort of weird combination that I hadn't thought of before. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, no, it is, it is extraordinary, and uh, it is very tempting to see all of these people as mini-Trumps and, you know, like Duterte as well. I mean, it, it, they seem to be popping up all over the place. Um, and the thing about Bolsonaro is he is... An unsavoury character in many ways, but he was chosen because he promised Trump-like to do something about the the swamp, as it were, um, the car wash scandal and the general corruption in in Brazil. And um, he's appointed a judge uh, who's very popular to to lead the uh, campaign against corruption. So. And he's also talked and made a lot of kind of quite encouraging noises about reviving the economy. So, um, But it's very hard to know you know, whether the, the, the sort of good Bolsonaro or the bad Bolsonaro will predominate. And uh, so it's going to be very interesting to see in the coming months how, how that plays out and also what his relations are with, with leaders in other countries, both those who are aligned with him ideologically like Trump is and, and those who aren't. Now, I have
0: uh, a, you know, to take us back across the pond, across the Atlantic to your homeland. Alas, I have a a wonderful transitional device here. 1858 was the great stink of London on the Thames. And 160 years after that, you have this metaphorical great stink of Brexit. Was that too tortured, sir? <laughs>
1: well 1858 for me is also the year that uh America and Europe were first connected by telegraph wire. So that's the that's what comes into mind uh, for me uh when you when you think about that period. But yes, there is this uh is it a distinct I mean it's really it's paralyzed British politics. Well, Parliament
0: isn't covering the drapes in lime to kind of conceal the stench right now. But certainly, I mean, this this acrimony and this fear and loathing, and did we make a mistake and what's going to happen? And very few people could name the Prime Minister of the UK. <laughs> yeah, it's not is bad this, as, it's is, not is as this bad headed? as
1: Australia, but yes. Now, well, the, the truthful answer is that no one knows where this is headed. And what's striking is that if you look at the Parliamentary arithmetic. There is not, it seems, a majority in favour of the deal that Theresa May, the Prime Minister, has negotiated uh, with the European Union about leaving. And the only thing there does seem to be a majority for is is not, tried to leave with no deal at all. So a, a so-called no deal exit, where you just sort of walk away. And um, most people think that would cause absolute chaos at the ports. It would be very difficult to uh, guarantee the supply of medicine and food, a lot of which Britain imports from Europe. Uh, and that would be a big mess. So given that Parliament is opposed to that, but can't decide on any of the other alternatives, that leaves various things like, you know, should we have another general election? Should we have a, a second referendum? Should we try to go back to Europe and negotiate another deal, even though they say they won't do another deal? None of the other alternatives are doable um, by March the 29th, which is where we're supposed to be leaving. And actually, even if they managed to get Theresa May's deal through Parliament this month, it looks like it would be very difficult to get all of the legislation you'd then need to pass through either. So it does suggest that there's going to have to be some kind of delay no matter what happens, and then that's very messy because if you delay Brexit, which is supposed to happen at the end of March, if you delay it to, say, the middle of the year, well, then you've got the European elections coming up in May, which at the moment Brits are not supposed to be voting in because we'll have left, so we don't need to elect Euro MPs anymore. Uh, so it all starts to get messier and messier, and um, so what we were hoping was that there would be some kind of resolution this year to this, and it may be that it's it's going to just all drag on... For even longer than than we think it is. Even the other thing to point out is that this thing that's being argued about at the moment is the terms of the exit. And even then, Even if you can agree on that, you've got many, many years of negotiating what the future relationship between Britain and Europe looks like. And that's essentially doing a very, very big trade deal. And we can see from the amount of time it's taken Europe to do trade deals with places like Canada um, that, I mean, I think it took something like eight or nine years to do the Canada deal. Uh, That is potentially going to take many years as well. So Britain is going to be in Brexit limbo for the foreseeable future. Uh, That's the really tragic thing about it. And that means that politicians aren't doing anything else. It means businesses are parallel They don't know whether they can invest or not. There's just massive uncertainty, and it's just massively unhelpful. Tom, why isn't a character like Jeremy
0: Corbyn going after, kind of sensing blood in the water and going in for the kill, that he would galvanize some some sort of opposition to, you guys propose this, you put it on our plate, and it's now time to push through a referendum and correct this mistake. Is it that he himself is not particularly popular? Can you you school me on this?
1: It's not that he isn't popular. The the weird thing is that uh, among the... Party members who joined the Labour Party after Jeremy Corbyn became leader. Um, there there is essentially there are a lot of people who who will follow him no matter what he says. And he is actually not a fan of the EU. So he he would very much like to leave. He says he'd like to leave because he would like to do things like nationalise some industries and provide more support, government support for industries. So sort of classic left-wing uh, policies and he says that EU law prevents him from doing that so by leaving he'll be able to do things like you know get British manufacturing back on its feet and all this sort of thing um, this doesn't seem to be true though uh, so all of the things that Labour said in its last manifesto about wanting to do this were tested and, and you know there's quite a lot of European countries that like propping up industries and and, and doing the sorts of things he, he likes doing so that doesn't seem to be true it just seems to be a sort of convenient excuse for why, why he wants to leave so you've got this weird situation where the members of the party who join Uh, the the sort of rank and file members of the party uh, are, are behind him but the members of parliament are actually mostly opposed to this and so you've got this weird split and if you look at you know most polls in this in this country, I think something like sixty percent of Labour supporters would like a second referendum, um, but Jeremy Corbyn himself doesn't want it. His MPs would would probably support one, but he doesn't want it. But his actual hardcore party members um, are opposed to it, and so he's got this he's got this contrast that he doesn't want to annoy his base, um, and he also worries about there are hardcore pockets of resistance to to Brexit. Sorry, the support for Brexit. Um in particularly in the north uh, in Labour supporting seats, and he worries about losing those traditional areas of Labour support if he if he turns around and says actually we're going to we're going to give up on Brexit, or or even if we have a, a second referendum. So yeah, I mean on the face of it, the logical for the thing for him to do, given this contradiction, is say let's have a second referendum. You know, let the people decide. You know, we politicians don't seem to be able to do it, uh, but he just can't bring himself to do it.
0: Who then is the torchbearer for continued globalization or rapprochement with the the rest of the continent?
1: Uh, well, there aren't very many people, um, and essentially, what a lot of politicians are doing are they're sitting on their hands, they're waiting for this to to be resolved um, because they they don't want to. If, if if you're a centrist, sensible politician, the best thing for you to do, I mean, some of them are, are sort of campaigning for a second referendum, but a lot of a lot of them are just sort of keeping their heads down because then once the decision has been made, they can whatever it is, they can say, well, the decision's been made, that's all, it's all done, and now you know, let's let's move forward. Um, and that way you're not sort of tying yourself to, to, to one side or another. So there's there's quite a lot of sort of constructive ambiguity going on here, uh, not just from Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and, you know, that's that's a problem. It means we don't have people who are prepared to really step forward in the front line of politics and say, this is a stupid idea and we should, we should all just say it. we should admit that or this is a stupid idea and we should have a second referendum to make sure that people still really want to do it. Um, they're really... Isn't a, a, a huge amount of uh, of that happening. Instead, it's sort of a, a, a groundswell of people. Uh, the 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 one of the sort of merits, if you like, of the of the people's vote uh, movement is it doesn't really have. Um, it doesn't really have a leader. It's lots of people saying this is a stupid idea. We should uh, we should just rethink the whole thing. Full
0: disclosure. I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Tom Standage. He is deputy editor of The Economist, where he helped oversee the World in 2019 issue. He joins us from London. Tom, I am struck looking back at this New York Times glowing coverage of – Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia's visit to the U.S. I mean, wearing jeans, a sporty blazer, looked very much Silicon Valley. He's there with the co-founder of Google. He saw Oprah, Rupert Murdoch. He went to Harvard, met Mayor Mike Bloomberg. I think they went to a Starbucks together. And he had one job. One job is just keep up that facade. Everything was going so well. Israel was suddenly best friends with Riyadh and yet you have the Khashoggi murder uh, in the fall, which completely turned world opinion against this person, and now he's radioactive. Um, how, if at all, does he recover from this?
1: Well, it looks like he is going to hang on. I mean, um, uh, the king has has kept him in place and has moved a few of the, of, of the people around him around in, in a way that strengthens his position. So they do seem to be wanting to just tough this out. Um, the surprising thing about Khashoggi is that he was... Um, he, he didn't actually – we interviewed him in, I think, May of, uh, of 2018, and he was saying, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to – I don't actually f- support regime change. He was criticizing the regime, but he was saying it needed to um, to reform itself. He wasn't saying, you know, let's have a full democracy or anything. Um and yet even that was sort of deemed unacceptable. So what what's really astonishing is how sort of unradical some of the things he was saying were. It's just he had a very a very prominent platform and and evidently that you know. That yeah, was, I never
0: I didn't look at him as like a as a um you know uh like for example when Nigeria killed the the, the poet and playwright and and the government suffered the consequences for this the cheap yeah. opposition voice in it. If anything I thought he was close to the regime and Yeah. At the very least, let's 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 channel Machiavelli in this case. Could you not have just kidnapped the person or roughed him up a bit, or scared him? I mean, what what was? How can you're assuming that the person was rational in doing this? There was so much to lose. Well, I think and it's, was he it's not it's very, mindful of this?
1: I, I it, that's what's kind of worrying about it. It does it does suggest a lack of judgment, doesn't it? Because um, I mean, you know, this is this is really uh, not a not. He's not a terribly. He was not uh, calling for, you know, the downfall of the regime, Uh, and yet, even so, these criticisms were deemed to be intolerable, and I think that shows you how thin-skinned MBS must be. Um, So, uh, evidently, he is. He is. He's going to hold on, and the king has decided to leave him in place as crown prince, and. So I don't think anything's you know, going to change on that front uh, this year, but uh, we are seeing the implications of this in the business interests of the of the Saudi sovereign wealth fund and and so on. And people are saying they don't want to be associated with it anymore. People leaving um, and so forth, and it's obviously you know very bad for for them, just from a purely you know financial point of view, and and it also deals a blow to this a fatal blow to this image that MBS had managed to craft that he was going to be liberalizing and reforming and obviously, you know, he did this very symbolic thing of allowing women to drive. And our editor-in-chief Zani went to went to Saudi Arabia on the day when it became allowed and actually, you know, drove a car. Wow. Um so, you know, it, it all seemed to be going so well. And and yes, he this this sort of misjudgment has just meant that it's it's all of that has come to an end. And and that very glowing persona that he'd managed to create is we're now all saying we got it wrong and we shouldn't have said all those nice things about how optimistic we were
0: I have to ask you whenever I see headlines about this incident at the at the, at the consulate in in Turkey which surely they must have been mindful that there must be microphones in place or uh, the regimes are not exactly 100 percent besties and they trust each other to do this and um, the, the the ruler of Turkey, Erdoğan has been dripping, dripping, dripping embarrassing intel on this event, and it, it it's it's caused the Saudis to look, you know, oh gosh, yeah. we didn't realize, or they covered it up initially. But um, I'm also tempted to think of the extrajudicial assassination attempt. I know that's redundant of the Salisbury incident in the UK with uh, the attempted murder of Russian. Uh,
1: Oh uh, yes, yeah, so a former Russian spy. Yeah, that's right. With yeah. the
0: Novichok incident, and then the Soviet, and, and then I wonder, stepping back from if if Putin and and MBS are just saying, kind of the impunity is abundant. We're not afraid of this. We're not afraid if the world knows we're trying to BS through this. That these things are related. And you have mentioned Duterte earlier, and Duterte can get away with any sort of extrajudicial killing in Manila. That this is the kind of world we just live in right now, because you're not going to get a full throated opposition
1: response from the White House. Well, I think that is. I think that is fair. I think in in the case of, I would say MBS is is in a slightly different category because I think in the case of Putin, uh, Putin wanted to send the message. I think that that with the attempt on uh, Skripal, which was that, um, you know, you're not safe anywhere, and even if you think you are, uh, you're not. And I think that was the the message that Uh, because it was so obviously obviously them, but also by lying about it and by saying, no, it wasn't us and these were tourists and and all of the other kind of nonsense. I mean, this is, you know, Putin invented this playbook where, you just whenever something bad happens, you flood the zone with with different explanations. I mean, I remember when they that plane got shot down over over Ukraine, and they came up with all these ridiculous uh, possible other stories. Um, and there were so many of them that you know no one can tell what 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 the truth is anymore because there are all of these different theories. And and Putin is just a master at that. But he also knows that the direct lie that everyone knows is a lie, but no one can do anything about. Is a very very visible um, expression of power. And and Trump uses this technique quite a lot as well. I mean, he you know he he repeatedly says things that aren't true um but he, in a way he's saying you know who 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 can stop me I can make my own reality by just saying by saying these things and Duterte again by admitting to various uh, uh, crimes in his past uh, firstly he thinks they make him look like a tough guy and secondly he's he's sort of saying you know no one can no one can stop me uh, it's an expression of power I think in MBS's case I don't think um, this was meant. I think they literally thought that they'd make this guy disappear and everyone would say oh where's he gone and it would be a mystery and it would be unresolved and uh, the fact that the Turks turned out to have bugged the embassy which is a big no-no diplomatically but (laughs) it turned out that they did and the Turks came up with this theory that they tried to float through a state-friendly newspaper that Khashoggi's um, Apple Watch had recorded everything and that this had somehow been how they'd found out about it so they obviously the Turks didn't want to admit that they had bugged in the embassy, but they came up with this with this sort of plausible, I mean, if you don't think about it too hard, it turns out it's not plausible because it turns out that Apple Watches with cellular connections don't work in Turkey. And then of course it well, it turns out you can hack them so that they do. So it it all just became this kind of ridiculous how can you how can you prove that it wasn't really that? And that was really what the Turks wanted. They just wanted some very, very slender read on um, which they could say, well, this wasn't it wasn't us recording it. Um and somehow the audio is there and we we don't need to go into it. Anyway, had had they not had this really incontrovertible, incontrovertible evidence, um, you know, then, then maybe they would have been able to have this sort of mysterious disappearance. But I don't think, um, I don't think it was meant to have been uh, discovered and then a warning to other people or a, uh, a sort of demonstration of anyone's power. And I think that's the difference with the kind of thing that Putin does. Putin does obviously stupid or obviously made up thing. I mean, the, my favorite one was when he discovered a an urn an ancient greek urn on the bottom of the black sea he went scuba diving and oh look there was an urn and he discovered it and of course it had just been taken out of a museum you've never seen just a clean urn <laughs> on the bottom of the sea all the time when he went to the t- uh, to the zoo and the, some tigers escaped and he just happened to be holding a, a gun with tranquilizer darts in it so he shot the um he shot the tiger with a t- tranquilizer dart and all of the uh, you know people at the at the zoo were like oh thank you for saving us uh, and then he you know, just just the other day he was playing um he he put his ice skates on and uh, he went and played uh, in a. In a you know celebrity ice hockey match, and amazingly, he scored five goals. And the Reuters well, report on the back this happens with the leader. This happens with yeah, yeah. the dear leader of North Korea. Too. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, four yes. well, the, holes
0: in one in a row.
1: I think the first time he ever played <laughs> golf, he got he got nine holes in one on the first round. Yes, exactly. Um, but no, Putin. I mean, in Putin's case, um, you know, everyone knows it's rubbish. Well, not everyone, but I mean, you know, most people know this is this is rubbish. But he's kind of saying, yeah, who's going to stop me? Uh, and it's a it's a it is a, a demonstration of his power. Yeah, the Reuters report said that the that the netminder in the, in the hockey match looked like they were sort of actively trying to get out of the way. You know, the worst thing they could possibly have done was accidentally blocked the goal, because then they would have got into trouble. So, um, so yeah, this this kind of um, and in fact, we have a piece in the World in 2019 uh, issue where we we talk about this sort of uh, appropriation of reality TV tropes and memes by world leaders. And uh, and and Putin has launched a reality show uh, in 2018 as a way of trying to you know. Improve his ratings. He's got terrible ratings at the moment, which is one of the reasons that he's you know up to no good in in Ukraine again. Um, and sorry, you know, next to next to Ukraine by uh, by Crimea. And um, it's essentially a, it's all a ploy to try and rebuild his really quite terrible ratings at the moment.
0: Well, Tom, the footnote on the Novachuk attack is I wonder has has British intelligence broadly been emasculated? Aren't you supposed to see some sort of response? I mean, I understand you have parliament and Theresa May in disarray dealing with Brexit on their own, but are they effectively unable to go and and maybe respond in kind, maybe not as savagely, but to show that they too have assets on the ground in Moscow?
1: Uh, What? Just a retaliatory killing? I'm not sure. I don't know. Other other than, other than
0: other than moral suasion and coming out and saying we are shocked, shocked. We have photos of these two men. Clearly, it was brazen. They were photographed everywhere, and I think part of the insult was parading them out in front of state TV afterwards and saying. We're just so traumatized by this. We've been drinking because it's destroyed our privacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're yeah, just exactly. on holiday in London. I mean, is is that it? You're just supposed to leave it at that and say, "Oh, that's Vladimir now, being I, my, Vladimir."
1: My understanding is that what the Brit- what British intelligence did was that they wanted to. They British intelligence were very forthcoming in. I mean, unusually forthcoming in how much evidence they had linking those two men to the killing. They had all of the CCTV stuff. They they said they under- You know, they knew where they'd stayed. They reconstructed all of it because we have a lot of CCTV. TV cameras in Britain, and so um, uh, you know if you if you know what you're looking for in retrospect, you you can you can go and find things. And I think part of the message they were trying to send was uh, you can't do this kind of thing uh, with impunity because we can, we 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 are we know more than you think you do, and uh, and you know we will we will be able to identify. What happened to who, you guys? You things.
0: used to have a navy. You used to attack capitals. You used to come back with your dukes up. You know, Union Jack. Just saying. Oh, we have
1: CCTV. So shame on you. Well. I think most people would look back at those periods of, you know, when we went around with gunboat diplomacy and the opium wars and said that Mike was right as, you know, in some ways, it, uh, something that's right that we've moved on from. So uh, imperialism, colonialism, and so Tom, on. Tom,
0: I, I can't <laughs> quite get your jingoism to No, exactly, to exactly. Do you think
1: we should, should we, should we um, burn the White House down again? We could, we could always do that. Oh, the country is certainly
0: vulnerable right now. I should take you, though, to Facebook, which is involved in this story as well. And I know you are a tech wonk, and you followed uh, privacy issues and and digital creep and whatnot. This was a banner-awful year for them publicity-wise, both in the revelations of of the enabling that they did in the fixing of the 2016 election and um, opposition research against somebody like George Soros and Sheryl Sandberg, who was the respectable adult of the company, was kind of brought out. Uh, but clearly, the, the company continues. It has had a slowdown in advertising. The stock has taken a huge hit, but I'm not convinced
1: that people have... Uh, quit Facebook en mass? No, I think it's kind of become mum book. Um, so it, 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 the young people aren't joining it at all, and so it's the it's the population of Facebook is aging, and as a result, you know it'll always be there and it'll always have a big you know group of people, but um, but it's not going to be as important potentially in the future. And, and you know, Facebook knows this perfectly well. They are switching their attention to Instagram. And the way you think about Instagram is it's sort of Facebook too. Um or actually you could think about it I used to think about it as an escape pod. It was like if everything went wrong with Facebook, they would uh, they would essentially Separate them, and they would have you know, like the banks did in the banking crisis. So you put all the bad assets in the bad bank, and then you kind of shut that one down, and um, and you have all the lawsuits, you know, go to that bank, and and then meanwhile you kind of try and get as many good assets uh, away into a. separate well, don't forget, don't bank. forget about WhatsApp. Yeah, what well, exactly? So you could. I mean, um, WhatsApp, Messenger, most people, Instagram. Most people do forget about WhatsApp because uh, they they aren't aware that it is it is all the same thing. But it's, but Instagram is is still growing very fast obviously it's completely stolen snapchat's lunch and so i used to think about it as an escape pod but now i've realized it's it's more like it's actually a new mothership for for facebook and i think you know facebook will become the kind of legacy product and instagram is going to be where they're putting more and more of their effort and you can see they're they're talking about this in earnings calls because they can see that that Means monetizing ads in the face in the Instagram Stories stream, and at the moment they are not able to to monetize Instagram Stories through ads as effectively as they can the Facebook uh, newsfeed, and this is where they were uh, just around the time they did their IPO. They were making most of their money from adverts in the desktop newsfeed, and the big question was whether they were going to be able to make the transition to mobile and whether they would be able to monetize ads on the mobile version of the newsfeed. And of course the answer was they could and it turned out that uh, mobile was actually much more valuable than desktop because people spend more time on it and they've got their phones with them all the time and all this sort of thing. So they they are painting this and not without reason I think as a similar version of that transition which is they're going to figure out the right way to monetize stories in Instagram because that's where people are spending more and more their of their time, um, and they also want to add story. I mean, they've added stories to Facebook and WhatsApp, although they're not as used quite as much. But if they can do that, then they've essentially got a chance to reinvent themselves with a uh, with a new format. And Instagram does have some problems with it, with sort of stuff being passed around on it, but nothing like to the extent of Facebook. It's a much simpler product, so that would potentially allow them to insulate themselves from uh, a lot of these problems by focusing on a product where there are fewer of these sort of things. Things that congressional committees want to delve into, but it's it's going to take a while, and it's going to be a painful year for them in 2019. There's, there's going to be, uh, I mean, the worrying thing if you're if you're in tech is that previously you know the Democrats wanted to investigate you, and the Republicans would say no, free enterprise, you know, hands off. And now the Republicans are, uh, if anything, even keener to investigate all the tech companies because they're sure that their algorithms have an inherent anti-right wing bias, and um, and so everyone hates the tech companies, and this this sort of you know, bipartisan hostility is extremely bad news if you are uh, the boss of Facebook or, or Google or, or any of these other big tech companies.
0: And speaking of it, Mark Zuckerberg, who even bandied about this, this you know, this Iowa tour, maybe it was 16 months ago, if you can imagine that. Uh, I don't understand, you know, looking back to the year 2000, can anybody truly believe that Bill Gates of Microsoft was a villain? Uh, and <laughs> the breakup of, of Internet Explorer versus Netscape and, and who had hegemony in the desktop, all of that was mooted, and he left the company and went off and he's now a hero, philanthropic hero-in-chief maybe of the planet. Why doesn't Mark Zuckerberg just leave this to adults and let them clean up the mess he left?
1: Well, I think uh, Mark, I think Bill Gates' image changed for several reasons. Firstly, the fact that he retired and stepped away from the company that was accused of doing all these things um, and then became the greatest philanthropist in, in world history. Uh, firstly, you know, that counted for something. Secondly, we all realized that the... The thing that I mean, Microsoft then became a much less powerful company. So the thing that we were worrying about, which was that they were going to rule everything, um, didn't matter so much. Um, we, you know, People became much. It was like, OK, the Internet has arrived and mobile phones have arrived and Microsoft isn't very good at doing anything with mobile devices. So uh, so they got left behind and everyone started to worry about Google instead uh, and now Facebook. And so. Those, th- you know, the world moved on, and now actually one of the you know great comebacks in in corporate history has been what um, Microsoft's done under its its new boss in the in the last couple, of, well, the last three or four years. And it, I mean, it, it, I think it's now a more valuable company than the Apple again, isn't it? So I mean, it's 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 come back and. Um, as a result, it's come back in a way that doesn't touch people's lives quite so much. It's a, it's mainly a cloud services company now, and yes, you know I have an Xbox and so on. But the thing that people were worried about all the time was that Microsoft was going to kind of own every facet of their lives—the computers they used at work and the uh, the devices that they used in, at home as well. And that kind of fear passed away, and now looks quite quaint, I think, because the extent of you know the data that Facebook and Google hold on us now is is you know absolutely you <laughs> know it's far
0: more than, uh, than Microsoft i have ever had talk about facebook and google they they lord over a veritable you know duopoly of all advertising they've sucked all the revenue out of the room you've seen what's happened to newspapers and the time magazine world and And uh, publications falling left and right and even marginal players like AOL and and Yahoo selling out and and saying, oh, our pivot to video didn't work. Even so, and even after Mark Zuckerberg lost more money than any of the world's 500 richest billionaires during 2018, he is still worth more than $50 billion, which has me wondering if it's (laughs) –
1: It's still an advertising machine. I mean, Facebook and yeah, Facebook is a you know it's it's, a, it's printing money because it controls so much of uh, of people's attention. Um, so I mean, it, it, it's often said of Google that you, and Facebook, Google is where you go when you want to get something done, you want to find something out, and they want to get you off their results page as fast as possible. And sometimes that means by clicking on an ad. But, you know, essentially, you go to Google to get work done. And Facebook is where you go to kill time. It's like, oh, I've got five minutes before my train arrives. So you get Facebook out to to waste time. And there's an enormous amount of that kind of, you know, time sponge capacity that that people have. And that's an amazingly, in each of their different ways, these are both amazingly lucrative things to be. Um, So, yeah, that duopoly is Looks, looks quite people talk about it being challenged and you know who who will challenge it could Snapchat challenge it I mean a lot of people supported uh, Snapchat because they wanted a, a third play here and, and people also said Verizon uh, potentially in the US at least because obviously it has all this data from people's phones being the biggest wireless carrier but then it also had AOL and uh, you know, Tumblr and various other properties that it, it had put together um, it's clear now that Verizon has abandoned that and it's written down the value of all those uh, things that it was doing but that for a while was the plan that they were going to be the number three uh, to the big two, at least within the within the U.S. But at the moment, that that doesn't seem. But at the moment, Amazon seems like the the biggest challenger. Its its advertising business is is growing extremely fast. Uh, but it's still a way off uh, the other two.
0: Tom Standage, deputy editor of The Economist, kindly take us to the Middle East. There was a column on Benjamin Netanyahu's battle for survival in Israel. Here he is. He is rather popular. Um, for, for the many terms he's still been in office. I do not recall another prime minister of Israel having this kind of longevity in the modern era. And yet he does face this this sort of Damocles. Was there an ethical transgression? Is the, the country's attorney general going to come after him? Does he have to declare another election up for grabs? Can he still cobble together uh, a right and um, right of center coalition to keep him in power? Talk to me about him.
1: I am struck by how long he's been there and how uh, often he seems to be able to survive these sorts of scandals. But uh, but this time, it really uh, does look like uh, you know it's going to be tricky to wriggle out of this one.
0: Okay, then I will take you to the markets, where we have been in the throes of a correction. Finally, it's happened for the first time, I think, a bear market since 2011, close enough to a bear market. We're down 19%. And the year starts with some sense of, of fear and anxiety in markets that there is going to be a reckoning. You have seen a collapse in the price of oil. Where to?
1: Uh, yeah, it's not looking good. We, the word we like to use here is wobbly. It's going to be a wobbly year. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are saying that a recession in the U.S. by the end of 2019 looks quite likely. There are just so many um, things flashing red at the moment. Uh, obviously, the concerns about the the trade war with China and where that's going to go, Um, the, the stock market's just all over the place. One minute it's up, one minute it's down. Um, you know, has it, uh, is it going to surpass the peak of last year? It looks pretty unlikely. I mean, it's, you know, the, the fact that the expansion will have been the longest expansion, uh, on record by the what is it by July the longest peacetime in history longest peacetime expansion in history so um, so you know we we're overdue um, a change uh, the tax cuts last year boosted growth but that sugar rush is going to wear off um, this year and in the meantime uh, you know d- debt interest payments have, have ballooned it's going to be two percent of GDP for the US which is frightening and then all these companies that have piled on debt when rates were low uh, rates going up maybe not as not as far and as fast as uh, as we thought they were going to but uh, but they certainly are are going up, and so all of these things point in the same direction. Another uh, factoid that, um, that that one of my colleagues pointed out is, is that the, the last two times that unemployment has been this low in the U.S., so around four um, percent, the economy has been in, was in a recession a year later. Um, so all of these things say um, things are probably you know going to get worse from here, and and we know if we if we look at at, at previous crises, they they go up and down. There's a lot of volatility. Uh, you know and we th- we think oh no it's it's coming back and uh, it's just it's a mess for a year or so and then everyone realizes okay no we are we are in a recession so uh so yeah it's it's quite a gloomy outlook unfortunately
0: tom i i remain struck when i peruse the the tables and charts in the back of your issue the economist that the United States Federal Reserve, while it has ratcheted rates up higher over the past several years, you're still below where it was before the financial crisis started. I think they were yep. at a five and a quarter percent target. They're maybe at nearly half that right now, or less than half that. But no, exactly. look at the likes of Switzerland. Look at the Scandinavian countries that still have emergency interest rate policy, many times negative interest rates, in a global economy that's growing. This is not exactly a depressive type environment. I mean, how do you take the bone back from the dog's mouth well, and, that's what, so, and ratchet that's what, so, up.
1: That's what's so worrying that there's much, much less room for maneuver when when rates are still this low and yes, they've gone up a bit. Um, but even in the U.S., they haven't gone up very far. So, so that you know, in in Europe, we was resorted to quantitative easing and and, and so on, uh, which also is coming to an end. So that's a, that's another reason to kind of uh, t- to worry. But it, it means that there is just much much less room for manoeuvre if things do get bad, and that's that's very concerning. My favourite example of one of the strange consequences of these negative interest rates is in Sweden, people were overpaying their taxes because um, when you've got negative interest rates in the banks, if you keep money in in the bank. Then it, um, it, it you know obviously it goes down. You're charged to store money in the bank. Um, but if you overpay your taxes, the government sits on it for a bit, and then they uh, they, they refund you the the, the amount. And um, I think for a while, I think they've got rid of it now. But they also had to pay you interest. So the best way to to uh, actually earn some interest on in your money was to give it to the government for a while as a tax overpayment, and then they'd give it back to you with interest, um, and you would you would come out ahead. So yes, there are there are all sorts of strange things that happen when you when you end up with negative interest rates, and we've still got them in some places.
0: And, and this reminds me of some of the crazy anecdotes you hear out of Venezuela, where people try to contort to preserve any value on their money in a, in a period of hyperinflation, and they hoard used cars or groceries or toilet paper from across the border in Colombia. Um, it's striking to hear about that from the most advanced countries on the planet that you want to overpay your
1: taxes. Yeah, no, it is. It is totally bizarre. But you know, that's what they that's what they ended up having to do. So, yeah,
0: Take me to China. Um, you have this this furnace that keeps running this economic machine. You have not had a hard landing truly after 2008. They have kept it together, and I wonder. And I've asked so many guests on this show. We've had Jim Chanos, the, the hedge fund manager, the skeptic on on China. Is what does happen if China were to have a kind of an unfiltered hard landing? Would it potentially benefit the United States in that it takes the foot off? Uh, the price pedal and that, that oil prices or commodity prices collapse. I mean, we after all, we don't depend on China for um, exports of our wares overwhelmingly. They're still trying to convert into a consumer driven economy, but that has not manifested yet.
1: Right, but you do allow re- them to buy your treasury bonds, so that that's quite worrying. And the and oil prices are already already pretty low. This is an interesting year for China because, um, as is any year, with a whole load of nines at the end of it, um, because they they end up having a whole load of anniversaries. And, and uh, in fact, twenty nineteen is um, is a is a particularly big year for anniversaries. It's the hundredth anniversary of the May the Fourth Movement, and this was a student uprising that led to the founding of the Chinese Communist Party in nineteen twenty one. And there's the sort of spirit of May the Fourth, and there's a there's a a fight over sort of whether the spirit of of May the Fourth still resides with the Communist Party and with the government, or whether protesters against the government are in fact the sort of true um, heirs to, to to May the Fourth. And this this debate happened in nineteen eighty nine, um, just before the. I mean, this was one of the the catalysts for the for the Tiananmen Square uh, protests because it was students again who were competing, who were protesting against against the government. Um, so the government's got a bit of a. a, a it's got to play it very carefully this year because it's trying to sort of stage manage the way that things in its past were remembered. Another one is it's the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic itself. And again, um, there's a risk that the party and the public will interpret this anniversary in, in different ways. So I think there's, there's it's a, a year to really keep an eye on China because uh, you've got this trade war going on. Um, and the, the moment, you know, the government seems to be uh, directing, um, you know, concerns about that. Uh, it's all america's fault and so on but but what happens if the government is if if the trade war really starts to hurt and and the government is blamed for it um, so you've got this sort of intersection of of economic and and uh, and political concerns particularly this year because of because of all of these uh, anniversaries so um it's it's definitely a, a country to watch
0: if i had asked you 30 years ago let's say 1989 versus 2019 in the wake of the Tiananmen Square massacre, if you could have imagined, if I if I'd said I'm going to take you Ghost of Christmas Future, China will have taken hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. We've created an economic colossus that's on route to becoming the world's biggest economy, even in you know ultimately in purchasing parity terms. Um, it's an economic machine. It's given people a choice. Effectively, you can choose the economic route and and be capitalist within this structure. In kind, as long as you do not criticize us. And if anything, it's become much more of an authoritarian state. It's become a surveillance state. It leads the world in tracking technology and facial recognition technology. What would have been the likelihood of
1: that if I had if predicted that in 89? Well, at the time, in 1989, the thing that everyone was talking about was how Japan was about to overtake America. And uh, Japan was, you know, lots of people were frantically learning Japanese. Japan was the second biggest economy in the world and was about to, in theory, overtake America. Then what actually happened was Japan had a massive crash and has subsequently, you know, fallen down the rankings uh, has been overtaken by china so uh, so some people look at china and say this oh you know are we making the same mistake again all those people learning Mandarin does it really make sense you know look at all the people who learned Japanese in the 80s and now kind of kind of regret it um so I find that that historical analogy quite interesting I think um, that said it, it's uh, less likely. I mean, some people have said, uh, There's a. I think Martin Wolf has made this point in the FT recently, uh, that, you know, we shouldn't discount the possibility that actually the growth does stall in China. Um, but I think it does look like a, a very different situation because China had so much catch-up growth and so rapidly and the reforms that, you know, came in in the late 70s and that were starting to bear fruit uh, in 1989 and have had such an astonishing uh Made such an astonishing difference. Still, um, you know that has that completely completely transformed the economy. And, and uh, it's just this, you know you go to you go to China and it, it is it's like seeing the future. I mean it is it, uh, the the facial recognition is the is a is a great example of this. Actually, um, my favourite example being the way that. Uh, facial recognition is used in some public loo's to prevent people stealing the loo paper. Um, so China is still a poor enough country that if you leave uh, stacks of loo paper in the in the loo, people will steal them. Uh, but it's a sophisticated enough country that it can install machines that dispense a certain amount of loo paper, remember people's faces, and then don't let them have any more loo paper for you know a certain period. Um, and <laughs> that kind of tells you right there, or, there. Or, no, <laughs>
0: certainly, Tom. It's downright, downright Orwellian or Kubrickian. Well, it's not uh, remembering exactly. Viral it's not matter well, really no, who they are. Vi- that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a viral video on YouTube, I think, of the Pudong bullet train where you have the announcer come come on and say, uh, "Don't forget that your social credit score is yeah, effectively yeah. going to be rated if we see any sort of boorish behavior." I mean, I could not have scripted that anymore. No, no, it is,
1: it is astonishing. My favorite other example is the uh, uh, they give you tickets for jaywalking in in some cities, uh, and they have facial recognition cameras, and if they see you going across the you know going across the road, then um, then they uh, they say, "Oh, that person over there," and they send you a ticket. And there was a there was a woman who got one of these tickets. And she was the. Uh, it turned out she's the head of uh, one of the big app- appliance white goods makers in in China, and she appears in the adverts, you know, for these washing machines or air conditioners or whatever they are, and says, you know, you can trust me. Here, are, here are my products. And there was a there was a poster of her on the side of a bus uh, advertising things, and the bus drove through an intersection, and a jaywalking camera saw her face on the side of the bus and decided that she was a, a giant jaywalking bus, um, and issued her a ticket. And <laughs> it subsequently turned out. Um, uh, that it was her, you know, it was it was uh, a poster of her an advert uh, rather than actually her jaywalking. But yes, I mean they absolutely lead the way in the ad- adoption of this sort of thing. I think China is very likely to lead the way in autonomous vehicles as well. Um, not necessarily because they'll have the best technology, but because um, it will be easier to introduce them in an authoritarian state. You'll just say, you know, no human piloted cars in this city, or you have to use these, you know, robo taxis or whatever. And uh, you know, it's it's easier to introduce big new infrastructure changes uh, if you've got an authoritarian government like that
0: full disclosure i'm robin farzad joining us from london is tom standage deputy editor of the economist uh, sir in the 10 minutes or so we have left i i let you have open skate like they used to say in the the skating rinks of my childhood uh, what would you like to talk about what is being short shrifted what do you think we're going to be talking about six months hence anything you'd like to talk about
1: uh, I, there's a few things that, that interest me that are going on at the moment. Um, one is the, the sort of uh, revival of interest uh, in space and space technology. And obviously SpaceX is the company that we we think about there with with low-Earth orbits uh, launching and putting satellites up and sending stuff to the space station. But, um, but actually um, the moon is going to be a, a, a focus of private space companies uh, in the same way that low-Earth orbit has been. And it's pretty much the same playbook from NASA which is sort of encouraging private companies to uh, build systems that could get you to low Earth orbit or to the moon and then pay them to do stuff for you, to take science payloads. And- we're going to be seeing um, a, a you know a few landers reaching the moon this year. Obviously, it's the fiftieth anniversary of the of the first manned landing. Uh, there's a Chinese lander, uh, there's an Indian lander due to go there, and the Chinese lander is going to the far side of the moon, um, which is quite an interesting place to do astronomy because you haven't got the the Earth in the you know uh, messing things up all the kind of radio signals from the Earth. But the interesting one for me, I think, is the uh, is the Israeli landing, lander, which is uh, being run by Space IL, which is a non profit group. So it's a it's a, a mission to the moon that is not being run by a government space agency um, and i think i think that's you know we may look back at, on that as, as quite significant um because once you've got private companies getting interested in this uh then all sorts of uh, interesting new things might happen also you've got uh the prospect of very large constellations of low earth orbit satellites starting to be launched this year uh we're talking about i mean there's something like um I think something like five thousand satellites have been launched since the beginning of the space age, uh, and I think two thousand are still up there, and one thousand of them still work. Something like that. Uh, SpaceX is talking about launching about twelve thousand uh, satellites, and a rival uh, group called OneWeb wants to launch sort of four or five thousand uh, to provide very, very high-speed uh, broadband internet access all over the planet. And that could have very interesting uh, political implications if you, you know, can get uncensored, very, very fast internet access wherever you are, and governments can't control it. You know, what what happens then? So I think this idea of sort of a a new Commercial frontier in space, which people have talked about for a long time. I think we're start, starting to get some movement then, and I, I wonder whether people will will look back, um, you know, later this century and say, "Oh, yes, that was the decade when you know uh, space started to get going." If you look at what happened in the nineteenth, uh, in the twentieth century, you know, at the beginning of the century, flying machines were for you know they didn't exist, and then they were only for people who were crazy, um, and then they were for the very rich, and then they became something you know that you only notice when it's delayed, and it becomes a kind of a very uh, ordinary, ordinary thing to do. And I wonder whether the same trajectory we'll, we'll, we'll see for space. But I, I I find the kind of increasing commercial interest in space uh, a, a very interesting phenomenon at the moment. Um, and then another area where I think it's we might be reaching a, a tipping point is um, in attitudes towards meat. So a very interesting question I find uh, is to ask what aspect of modern behaviour will people find unacceptable or immoral in 20 or 30 years' time? Um, because there are so many things we look back on in the past and say, "Oh, how can how can people have done that? How why did they put up with so much racism or sexism or why did they tolerate slavery or whatever?" Um, so, what is it that we do that that uh, future generations will think is? Absolutely inappropriate, and I wonder whether meat eating is quite close to the top of that list. Now I'm a big fan of, of eating eating meat, and I like the taste of it. But if I could have the same taste and it not have to have come from an animal, um, then I'd take that deal. And we're starting to see increasingly sophisticated forms of artificial meat, but we're also seeing them being adopted by big meat companies or by people associated with meat, like McDonald's. So they have a, a, a vegan burger and so on. So we're seeing sales of vegan food rising much faster than there are, actu- you know, than people are actually. Becoming vegans so sort of part-time veganism is 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 starting to happen um so i think if you know if there are technologies that allow us to have our steak and eat it uh, without having to kill 65 billion animals a year uh, that would would start to change people's minds and i think you might see people like me who like eating meat and sort of don't, don't think too much about the uh you know the ethics of factory farming and all the rest of it but that we could see a tipping point there we could see a sort of uh A change in attitudes that starts off in the developed world and then maybe spreads elsewhere. Um, One of the things to to note is that something like 1.3 billion people around the world depend on the uh, on livestock for for employment and food security and we worry about the robots coming and taking all of our jobs but if artificial meat came along and we grew it in vats which would have enormous environmental benefits because you wouldn't have all of the uh, greenhouse gas emissions methane and, uh, exactly and methane coming from cows uh, so you know that would be great but um, but you know if you did get rid of all of the uh, livestock farming then that would actually potentially put more than a billion people out of work which is maybe we should be worrying about that and, uh, rather than robots um, but anyway I think I think that's again something very much worth, uh, worth following it's one of those kind of, you know, are we coming to a social tipping point in the next, in the next two or three years where, where more and more people will say I'm not, going to, I'm not going to eat meat made from animals, where other forms of artificial meat become cheaper and people start to change their attitudes. A
0: couple of other tipping points to notice here and you, you, you flicked at kind of the clean tech or green tech aspects of it is this seems to be the year. 2018 was the year that the plastic straw became taboo? I find that at least all the restaurants you go to, you have to ask for a straw. Yes, it's not assumed we're going to we've give it to you. we pointed
1: out that we pointed out that this is a little bit silly because um, most of the, nearly all of the plastic in the ocean, has comes from a very small number of Asian countries. Um, yes, yeah, I have noticed oh, that. Oh, that yeah. was a great.
0: That was a great issue with an issue that yeah. you put out. That if you could just staunch these these four or five rivers. That that yeah. would attribute to the bulk of the plastic. But biomass instead, what's in the happening ocean.
1: is there's a lot of, of virtue signaling going on in in Europe, where everyone is banning single use plastics and saying this is silly. Um, and actually, that's not going to reduce because hardly any of that plastic ends up in the ocean anyway. In in, in Europe, it, it's pretty much all recycled or goes into landfill. So it's it's a way of yeah. There is a problem with plastic in the ocean, but this is. Possibly not the way to solve it.
0: And, Tom, Tom, you've also covered it. uh, Juul, which has really taken the crown of vaping this year. There has been a tipping point away from cigarettes. I don't know if it's the case in Europe and certainly not in developing economies here. But enough for Altria, uh, the parent of Philip Morris USA, to make a significant investment in the company to kind of bet the ranch on it.
1: No, exactly, and I think that's an interesting shift too, um, because vaping doesn't seem to have the uh, the social stigma associated with cigarette smoking because it doesn't have the the secondary consequences as far as anyone can tell, and it also doesn't smell. I mean, the smell of cigarettes gives me a headache, but uh, but vaping is is a, is a different thing. So uh, that, again, that does seem to be a a change in attitude, and it's a significant move. The fact that Philip Morris has made this investment because they had their own rival. E-cigarette product. I don't know if they're keeping that one going. No, but they're gonna they're gonna yeah. they're gonna shut that down, and you right, might so see this is, a
0: transcontinental merger again of Philip Morris and Philip Morris International. One more for you is the internal combustion engine. Everybody had pegged such high hopes on Elon Musk's uh, Model Three Tesla, and he had a volatile year. And is this the man who's going to save the world and and kill the internal combustion engine? And it didn't quite happen yet.
1: Well, he, I think they're doing pretty well. I mean, uh, th- I think Tesla is the biggest selling luxury brand of car in, in the US now. So it's outselling Mercedes and BMW. And uh, I think Tesla manages to make more electric cars in a week than, than GM makes in a year. So I, I know the big car companies say, oh, it's really hard. And we've seen how difficult it's been for them to for Tesla to scale up production. And the big car companies say, yes, well, you know, we've had years of experience. We know how to mass produce things. But they seem not to be doing it uh, because there doesn't seem to be as much demand for their electric vehicles. So um, I think, you know, whatever happens to uh, to you know what people say that you know will will Elon Musk stay on as CEO of Tesla will he get booted out what what will happen um i think I don't think you can deny that he has changed the trajectory uh, for the adoption and the development of electric cars. He's made electric cars sexy. He's made them cool. And, uh, you know, even if Tesla ends up, you know, being bought out by someone else, then that will that will still be the case. Um, but the, the other thing about him is he does have, he does seem to have this, you know, something of a messiah complex, which is, you know, only I can say, well, it's not only I can say the word, well, he wouldn't put it like that. But um, but he, he does seem to fixate on big problems. And, uh, you know, he likes the idea that that he can fix them, and that's great. That you know he's trying to do something about changing the trajectory of the the energy system. Uh, but you know, more late, more recently, he's he's decided that that he, they need his help to rescue boys from a cave in Thailand or traffic in LA is completely terrible. But he's the man to fix the problem. Um, and you know, he's already spread himself very thin between the companies that that he has already. Oh, that's right. He's also going to save humanity from the AI apocalypse. Um, so maybe you know, maybe perhaps
0: he could figure out Brexit. Uh, good sir, Tom Standage, deputy editor of The Economist. I cannot thank you enough for spending this hour with us.
1: You're very welcome. It's been great. Thank you.
0: Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to WCVE. You can catch all episodes of Full Disclosure on NPR One and on iTunes at link fulldradio.com. Additionally, you should visit Twitter at Full D Radio for info on upcoming live events. Happy New Year. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week.